sins of all who repent. Create and make in us new hearts that we, worthily lamenting our sins and acknowledging our wretchedness, may obtain of you, the God of all mercy, perfect forgiveness through Jesus our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. You are going to die. Last year, I began Ash Wednesday with those words. You are going to die. And maybe the thing that I appreciate most about Ash Wednesday is the way that it forces me to confront the reality that this life, in this body, in this moment, it has an end. In the book of Ecclesiastes, it says it's much better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting. Better to go to a funeral than a big party. Because at a funeral, you reflect on the most significant things in the world. Many of us live like we're not going to die. We don't think about it, and I'm not so sure we always know how to think about it. But we know that off in the distance, it's a reality. That we're all standing in line, and at the end of that line is death. And many of us, almost all of us here, think that we're pretty far away from the end of that line. But we don't know. And on the other side of death, we meet God. And, and God is loving, and God is just. And God's love and his justice aren't at odds with each other. It's part of what it means for God to be God is to be perfectly loving and perfectly just. And so I think about the moment of my own death and encountering God. What will God say? Judgment is a problem. And there are some in our world today who deny that judgment exists at all. They don't believe in judgment. There is no final judgment. But that creates all kinds of problems. For if there is no final judgment, then that means that whether or not you were a giving, generous, loving, kind, patient, saintly kind of human being, at the end of your life, you are in the ground. And if you were a murdering, thieving, awful, genocidal, narcissistic, arrogant, self-centered person, at the end of your life, you are also in the ground. And if there is no judgment, then it won't really ultimately matter if you have lived your life in a saintly way or in the most destructive way. Dostoevsky was right in the Brothers Karamazov when he writes that without God, all things are permitted there's no judgment at the end. Then why not just live however you want for yourself? I think intuitively we know that that's wrong. 
that we do long for there to be some sort of justice. We march for justice. We proclaim justice. We believe in justice. And you can't have justice without God. At the end of all things is a good God who's holy and who judges. And that good and holy God, if he is good and holy, he judges everyone. We love judgment when it comes down on someone who's wronged us. We love judgment when we're driving and someone's driving like a maniac. Why don't they get pulled over while secretly hoping that we don't get stopped ourselves? We're constantly carving out exceptions for us. You shouldn't do that, we might say. And then we sort of come to the conclusion that if I do it, there's probably a good reason for it. If God is just, then God will judge all of us. And if God exists and justice is real and judgment is real, it means that your future and my future isn't just dirt. It's not just dust, as we will later tonight pronounce. But it's life with God forever or life without God forever. This evening I want to spend just a couple of minutes in Joel chapter 2. Joel is this Old Testament prophet who is writing to Israel in a time when they have just had their crops ravished by locusts. And Joel begins to proclaim to God's people that the locusts that have taken over their crops, that 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 was sort of the day of the Lord, which is this image that exists in the Bible. The day of the Lord is a time of God's right and good judgment. So Joel looks back and says, those locusts, they're like a day of the Lord. But he looks backwards and he thinks about Exodus and the way that God delivered his people through judgment. And he looks backwards and he he causes him to then look forwards. He said, those locusts came, but more is on its way. God judged then and God will judge in the future. So the question is, if we're all going to die and we're all going to meet God, how do we prepare? And in Joel chapter 2, God speaks, and this is what God says to Israel then, and I think I hope to us tonight. Joel 2, 12 and 13. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me. With all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Now, God says, return. Return now. God says, come home Now, come to me now. I I don't know, as you walked into Ash Wednesday tonight, where you feel like in your relationship with God. I don't know if you feel like you guys are distant friends who maybe used to know each other really well. But as your relationship's gone on, you just don't talk as much as you used to. And God's desire for you is that you would return. Return. Not just with part of yourself. God says, come to me and bring all of your heart. And what does that look like? It looks like fasting. 
In the Bible, people who want to grow closer to God and enter into a season of prayer will often fast. They'll often give up food, though today we give up all sorts of things. But in the Bible, the imagery for fasting is abstaining from food of some kind in order to use that time to intentionally draw closer to God. Now, God says, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping. I don't, uh, I don't cry as much as I want to. My kids will sometimes tease me for not being someone who cries regularly. But I cry at certain movies and certain moments, and certain things seem to tug at my heart. I wish that I cried over my sin more. I don't know if that resonates with you. One of the images in scripture is that when we understand what we have done and the way that we have run from God and the way that we are disconnected from God and the way that we've turned our back on God and when we see the consequences of our actions and our behaviors on our, on our friends and on our family, on our children and on our neighbors, we, we ought to be sad about those things. We ought to not just weep over them but mourn them. We ought to grieve them. A sign of a Christian is someone who hates their sin. Not just someone who's trying to manage it. So in Joel 2.12, God says, now, come home. I want all of you. I want, I want all of your heart. Fasting, weeping, and mourning. And maybe you're thinking, I can do those things. I can make those things happen. And then God says this, and rend your hearts and not your garments. To rend means to tear. In the Bible, when people are grieving tremendously, one of the standard things they do is they tear their clothes. When Reuben discovers that Joseph is no longer in the pit, he tears his clothes. The Bible is filled. It's one of the ways you express horror and anguish and grief. You tear your clothes. And God says to his people, before you go and you show everyone how sorry you are, I want you to know that I'm not interested in you tearing your clothes. I want, I want you to tear your heart. That what we should rend is not our clothes. It's so easy for us to show people how sorry we are, how repentant we are. I messed up, but I'm going to go to church a bunch now. I made this mistake, but I'm going to do all of the right things for a season. I think we understand the nature of this concept. It's not just showing that we're sorry, it's being sorry. And God says, I can just see right through your attempt to show everybody how repentant you are. I don't want you to show everyone how repentant you are. I want you to be repentant. It's amazing that on a day like today, people will show up at an Ash Wednesday service and they'll get ashes 
imposed on their foreheads as they're reminded that they are dust and they'll return to dust. And then they'll go onto social media and show the world that they have ashes. Or maybe they'll, they'll tell everyone online, this year I'm going to tell everybody that I'm giving up social media for Lent. I want the world to know that I'm giving it up. Maybe this year we prioritize giving God our hearts and not just those external expressions that might cause other people to think that we are pious or holy. Maybe this is the year where we say, God, I, I actually don't want to look repentant to everyone. I, I just want to really be repentant. God says, rend your heart and not your garments. When you feel sorry, how do you try to show everybody you're sorry? When you're repentant, how do you show people you're repentant? Before, the, before God, how do you attempt to show him that you're repentant? My hope and prayer for us as a church in this season is that we would be less interested in showing that we're repentant and more interested in being repentant. That we would turn away from the things that trap us. That's what sin does, right? Sin is like that child who puts his hand into the expensive vase and it gets stuck. And his parents come along and try to get his hand out. And he's like, I'm trapped. And the parents get soap suds and they put it on the hand and they try to get it out. And he's like, I'm stuck. And the parents say, well, we're going to have to destroy this vase. And then the son says, would it be helpful if I let go of the money I'm holding on to? Yeah. We hold on to things and they trap us and they keep us from being free. The problem in the Bible and your biggest problem and the reason that maybe you do not feel at home in the presence of God right now is because within your own heart you discover that you really want God but there's something else that has your eye. Maybe this Lent is the season where you say, God, I'm I'm going to let that go, and I'm going to give you my whole heart because I want you. God grounds his character in this text in verse 13 by saying that he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, that he relents over disaster. This is the same language that God uses in Exodus after God's people built a calf and started to worship it. And what was God's response? He reminds them that I am gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God wants to renew you and restore you and rekindle your relationship, but you have to understand that if you feel distant from God, there's a good chance that it's because you have been running away from home. I don't know if you have good families or if you come from a good family or not a good family, but if you had a good parent, you might understand this concept, um, which is nothing you can do changes your status as a son or daughter of your parents. 
For the Christian, if you have repented of your sin and you have put your faith and trust in Jesus alone as your Lord and Savior, then you are adopted and you have become a son or daughter of God. And nothing you can do can change your status as God's child. But just like in a family, if you ignore your father, if you don't show up at family dinner, if you don't talk, you don't share in the joy of being together, your relationship will suffer. I'm standing in a church where I know that there are people who are Christian. You're a child of God. You've been adopted by God. You're a member of his family, and nothing can change that. But your relationship with your father is not good. And God says to you tonight, Return. Come home. God wants to heal and restore and renew, but you have to own your sin because God is love and God is also just. God is the God of second chances and third and fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh and God gives so generously again and again and again. And I think some of you just need to know tonight that your Heavenly Father misses you. So my hope tonight is that you would get right with God. That you would remember that you were made from dust and you will return to dust. And that tonight you would not leave this room without reflecting on the fact that you're going to die and you're going to face God. And it's my hope that that day would be filled with anticipation and not regret. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would blow into the crevices of our hearts that you would unravel us, that we would be made aware of our sin, our idolatry, the things that we're holding on to, the ways in which we are often trying to live for you, but really for something else, the ways in which we sometimes try to pretend that we're pious or holy, the way we try to show others how Christian we are. Meanwhile, our hearts are locked and cold and distant from you. Lord, I pray you would deliver us from the temptation this Lenten season to do a bunch of things to make ourselves look like, oh, look at how I'm fasting, or look at what I'm doing, or look at how holy I am. You see through all of that. What you long for is our hearts. And so, Lord, I ask that you would draw us to you tonight. Not tomorrow, but tonight that now is the time where we would make right with you. Lord, you say that your people sometimes, they honor you with their lips, but their hearts are far from you. And we do not want to be those people. So God, tonight we, we give you all of ourselves. And as we enter into this season of Lent, we long 
that you would restore to us the joy of salvation and renew a right spirit within us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Jesus' first word in his public ministry is repent. I was thinking through scripture. Noah, when he's on the way to the ark, um, he's not walking up the ark with the message, you're good just the way you are. Amos is not confronted by the high priest in Israel for proclaiming, you just got to name it and claim it. Jeremiah wasn't put into the pit for preaching, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. Daniel wasn't put into the lion's den for telling people, if you believe it, you can achieve it. John the Baptist wasn't beheaded because he preached, you're enough. Instead, the message of all of these men of God was, repent. And that's our message to one another tonight. We're going to transition into the imposition of ashes. We get this sign on our foreheads in ash, which speaks of the frailty and uncertainty of human life, and it calls us to heartfelt repentance. It urges us to place our hope in God and God alone.